वेलकम टू सिंटॉक Talkers around the table today discuss the reasons of dying. We'll think about dying, death, end-of-life care, ethics, and the causes of death, while constantly wondering what exactly is death. What are the demographic and sociological patterns underlying death? How are we to confront death? What does death feel like, and is it an individuated experience for the one dying? Why is a dead brain equated with a dead human being, and how is death localized in a complex emergent organism? What is the nature of post-mortem experience immediately after death? Has death become slower in the last few centuries, and what's the future of dying? We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers around the table today. Dr. Satyabrata Das, who teaches at JNU in Delhi and is interested in philosophy and literature. Professor Prabhat Jha, who is a professor of global health at University of Toronto, and is the lead investigator for the Million Death Study in India. and Dr Sanjay Nagral who's a surgeon involved with liver transplantation and is also the publisher of Indian Journal of Medical Ethics Prabhat maybe we set the ball rolling with you um to understand how simple or non simple are the causes of dying and um what are the similar and dissimilar ways in which we've human beings have died over the centuries and what are the underlying patterns and the ebb and flow of that and how differently do people die differently in different parts of the world so maybe we just set the ball rolling there and uh, we'll pick it up as we go along sure thanks for having me on the show so if you want to understand the demography of death there's really two important concepts mm-hmm. one is the age at which people die mm-hmm. and the second are the causes which kill them and it's safe to say that we're living in a time where we're undergoing remarkable transition from high mortality environments mm-hmm. to lower mortality environment mm. and in that the causes of death are changing So you know generally I think people have a sense that um death is really kind of rampant worldwide and you see lots the news media and when you cover it it's got things like the Lufthansa crash and earthquakes and events and you kind of th- think of the 20th century as a century of lots of death two world wars but actually the way to think about the 20th century is that it's the century of life mm-hmm. you know in the 20th century there are about uh 20 million deaths um 2 crore to 4 crore deaths from things like influenza and pandemics there are about 20 crore deaths from wars and famine including maybe 2 crore uh, in the um 
or a little uh, short of that in the Bengal famine in World right. War uh, Two. Mm. But there were 200 crore deaths in children in the 20th century. In children? In children. Wow. And what's happened is, in fact, for most of human history, it's been what Thomas Hobbes described. Life has been brutish, nasty, and short. Mm. But over the last 100 or 150 years, we've had this extraordinary decrease in child mortality. Mm-hmm. And that is accelerating. If you look today at life expectancy around the world, it's average of 70. India is exactly that. Mm-hmm. And it's the case that the deaths, uh, death rates before old age, and that's where this is really important to think about. Yeah. The big lesson, the big bang of demography is that you cannot avoid death in old age, nor would we want to, I think, as we'll get into. Mm-hmm. But death early in life should be rare, and death in middle age need not be common. And basically, public health, demography is all working now in this grand convergence where you're trying to avoid death before old age. Well, how do you do that? Well, one of the ways is, of course, of getting people richer. But as we've learned... Is that directly correlated? But surprisingly, not as well as correlated as doing sensible things in public health and in uh, broadly. And that's been the big engine for the improvement in premature mortality, which I'm going to define as age 70. Mm-hmm. Um, and you ha- that you have to separate out into child mortality and middle age mm-hmm. mortality. Now, mm-hmm. my definition of middle age changes as I grow older, but roughly <laughs> I'm going to say 30 to 69. Sure. So we've had huge improvements in mortality before age 30. Right. Uh, mostly spurred earlier by things like water and sanitation. But in the last few decades, by vaccines, right. oral rehydration, right. and simple medical technologies. At yeah. 30 to 69, we've had improvements uh, such that overall, today, India's uh, and Indian's chance of dying before age 70 is actually lower than most high-income countries were just 40 years ago. Right. So India is under this transition to try to do lower death rates. And it's actually, if you step back, it's, we don't know it because, you know, you see the daily media and my students that I interact with don't kind of see the picture, but we're in a time of enormous change. If you look at someone like Bill uh, Gates and Melinda Gates, well, they've staked their personal fortune and they've said the rest of their lives they want to dedicate to this idea of completing the job for reducing child deaths even further. And that's, and that's interesting. Exciting. You know, I think the interesting thing, Prabhat, is, and it's very intriguing in many ways, why is there child death, let's say neonatal death? Because one would imagine that if nature is letting someone be born. Why do we have the bathtub pattern at all? Um, and it seems like that isn't going down at any rate, which is meaningful, isn't it? It is, yeah. And if you th- if what the key lesson, as, you, as you've hinted, is that the child deaths are avoidable. In India, now there's about a, uh, 1.5 million deaths before age five, but half of that in the first month of life and the rest after. 
And in the first month of life, there's really three important causes. Mm -hmm. um, birth asphyxia, birth trauma, low birth weight, mm -hmm. prematurity, and infection. Mm -hmm. And if you can get good preventive services and good basic care, mm -hmm. those deaths need not occur. And similarly, mm -hmm. at ages 1 to 59 months, there's really just two important things, pneumonia and diarrhea. Some places, malaria and, and measles. Sure. But those are also really avoidable. We know how to prevent and treat these. What the challenge is, and so much attention has gone to India, is that as India goes, so will the world. Mm -hmm. The world has set these ambitious targets, Millennium Development Amazing. Goals, yeah. trying to knock down child mortality that all will be fought. The last mile, last battles will really be in the districts of India to try to get child mortality down. That's very interesting. I think we'll come back to this in some way. Um, Sanjay, as we think about this, and you know, maybe we just zoom in from the level of society to the individual human body, and at some level it's a question which is very difficult to frame, but what is it like to die? How does death happen and does does one die differently? I mean, is it as simple as everyone's heart just stopping to beat or everyone's brain just going dead? How different or similar is death at an individual level? You know what I mean? Right. So, you know, uh, we... Um, I mean, there's one way of looking at it, which is what do we write on a death certificate? Yeah. Yeah, so that's... Uh, uh, a little simplistic, but you know, we 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 say cardio. Is that a simple exercise? Uh, it's it's actually uh, an an important exercise which we at least in India seem to have oversimplified. And mm -hmm. you know, for many years we we have written cardio respiratory arrest as the cause of death. Now, mm -hmm. uh, I guess you know that's it's too catch all. Yeah, it's a catch all. You know, mm -hmm. so what is important is what led to the cardiorespiratory arrest, and that's often not necessarily always very accurate. And I think it's been a problem in people who want to analyze causes of death. But uh, I think what has what is changing probably is that uh, uh, death is of course getting more and more uh, medicalized. Uh, this is probably a shift towards uh, uh, more and more uh, hospital deaths. Uh, uh, prolonging of the uh, of the process of uh, disease and more death. More protracted death. More protracted. Mm -hmm. um, but the final moment, I think, is is of course of course the same. It's just that uh, perhaps more and more people are spending those final moments hooked on to uh, monitors in ICUs mm -hmm. or in hospitals. At mm -hmm. least in the urban setting. At least in the those who are well-to-do, this is a definite tendency to rush everyone to hospital, irrespective of the diagnosis, irrespective of what the nature of that disease is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we are certainly medicalizing it a little. But I guess it's an it's a inevitable fallout of, uh, of uh, in a way, the success of modern medicine. The success of modern medicine is based on our ability to uh, prevent death or delay death. Yeah, and, and and I think it's inevitable, therefore, that whilst we attempt to do that, and I think modern medicine has, has to an extent, been successful yeah. uh, in doing that, uh, in improving life expectancy. Uh, we, of course, are going to have uh, get get a bit carried away and uh, want everyone to uh, be in medical under medical care, uh, intense medical care. How difficult is it to call someone dead? Oh, the uh, the the it's not very. How difficult. objective an exercise is it? 
Oh, it's a fairly objective exercise. You uh, examine somebody's um, pulse, uh, uh, examine the heartbeat mm -hmm. uh, carefully and uh, examine that the breathing has stopped. If somebody's in a hospital and hooked on to a monitor, the monitor uh, goes flat. The Hindi screen, uh, Hindi movie ways that sort of slowly stops beeping and goes flat. So that's uh, how it goes. So yeah. I can't use that definition for my hospital administrators then. Yes. They appear to be dead to me, but that's different, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but, but of course, now uh, we are beginning to uh, also look at brain death. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, more and more countries are legislating on brain death. So we're sort of beginning to introduce an idea of, uh, an, if, you, if you will, an alternative form of death, uh, is brain death, or to be more precise, brain stem death. Uh, but that's brain stem of course death. Mm. brain stem death. Yeah, but that's 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 applicable to a small minority of uh, of individuals uh, in a certain setting. Still, largely, it's cardiorespiratory death, and heart stops, breathing stops. And why this need? If we just stay on the issue of brain stem death, why this need to move in that direction and have that definition for death at all? Yeah, so I think uh, it, it's, it started somewhere in the in the fifties when um, in the developed world, uh, physicians, you know, the the development of intensive care units mm -hmm. um, led to people who had major uh, brain impairment, uh, mm -hmm. major damage to the brain, being hooked on to machines, the ventilator, and being pumped with drugs to keep their heart going. And what was realized is that. Um, they had lost their entire uh, brain function, neurological function, and it was just the heart going, and that uh, the heart would also inevitably and uh, inevitably stop with time, maybe in in hours or maybe sometimes in days. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's that was the concept as it started. But one must confess that the reason why this was legislated, popularized, and called kind of more and more countries uh, uh, kind of accepted it was because it had some implication for organ transplantation. It had implication for harvesting That's organs. That's very interesting. So when your brain dies, your liver is still alive in some ways. That's right. So the blood mm -hmm. flow is going because the heart is beating. Mm -hmm. and the brain is gone. Mm -hmm. So the implications were, number one, as I said, it had some, some implication for... Uh, the process of removal of organs because the organs are healthy because the organs are getting the blood supply. So which transplants can happen after brain death? Uh, you can you can have, there's a long list. So it's largely, you know, liver, kidney, pancreas, bowel, uh, lungs, heart. heart. Is, the, the, the list is growing. Mm -hmm. Actually, incidentally, interestingly now, the list is going into organs which are not necessarily sort of essential for life. So people are transplanting the hand, the face, the, you know, there is... Mm -hmm. uh, tongue and you know organs like that mm -hmm. but of course there's another another implication which is that if we know mm -hmm. if we know with a certain degree of certainty that somebody's brain is irretrievably damaged and the heart is in inevitably going to stop so that's a strong case for uh, stopping uh, any form of support yeah uh, I, I wouldn't even call it life support because there's no life as per the definition so you turn off the ventilator and that's how it, it went so it's legal death Interesting. Satya, what is death to you as a philosopher? Uh, we, we, we've discussed it from a medical standpoint for a bit. Um, what is death? Yeah. Uh, uh, first of all, it's, um, it's, uh, uh, the question is itself 
needs some thinking mm -hmm. because what is that when you ask certain things like what is table, what is chair, what is that? So you are posing questions like what is that and what is table in the same plan? In the same manner. As yeah. if uh, table is, so that is. Uh, that means it is one thing among so other things. You're describing a certain being to death. Right, totally. exactly. But uh, philosophically speaking, uh, uh, that may be precisely where there is no being. Yeah. <laughs> so one cannot even ask what is that. There is mm -hmm. no answer to this. Uh, uh, coming to this discussion, however, um, uh, it appears to be clinically that uh, an objective uh, diagnosis is possible that something, you know, someone died at a certain moment of time. Mm -hmm. uh, this is an objective definition or scientific definition of what is that. Uh, and it, in a certain way, it already objectifies that, as if it were something localizable, something uh, definable, something even masterable, perhaps. So you can delay that, you can, you know, ho you are hoping to uh, perhaps stop that. So it is an objective event, that is what it is generally cl clinically taught. Uh, but isn't it that um, if you uh, uh, if you think uh, uh, that and life relationship, uh, is it not that uh, the moment one is uh, born, one is also eligible to die? Eligible to die. Right. So uh, it is a com completely different position. Uh, a very great philosopher, Epicurus, wh whom everybody knows, mm. will say that, when that is there, I'm no longer there. And when I'm there, that is no longer there. Yeah. So uh, there is an opposition between uh, my existence and that. But I, however, think that isn't, uh, I want to think it more deeply. Is it, uh, it seems that uh, every moment of that is also a potentiality, uh, every moment of life is also a potentiality of that. Yeah. Isn't it? Uh, as if uh, we know what is life only on the basis of the occurrence called that. Mm -hmm. So every moment is, every uh, potentiality uh, of living, every moment of potentiality of living is also simultaneously a potentiality of dying. So they are not really uh, distinguishable. Uh, mortality and uh, living existing side by side. So in that way, one cannot really define what is that. Hmm. Hmm. Satya, it, it, to pick up on that a little bit, I think you know, certainly, I mean, as an epidemiologist, I study the, the numbers behind this, but there's a really important social context. And you're absolutely right. If I'm dead, it matters not to me at all. Yeah. It matters very much to my family. And just as an anecdote, you know, and my grandfather died in the rural village in Bihar at the age of 54. My mother was devastated. She was only 26 at that time. Mm. The village was devastated because he was a real leader. My grandmother didn't leave the house for about 30 years. She died much later. And when I went back and I chatted with my various uncles, I said, well, the loss of my grandfather prematurely just had enormous consequence. The loss of my grandmother at older ages was seen as, as you've eloquently argued, a, a continuation or a summation of life in some way. So I think what, what really matters, certainly in terms of epidemiology, is death is not inevitable, but early death and all of the horrible consequences it has on families and society is avoidable. 
And that's, that's been the basis for public health action for the last two or three centuries. Yeah, and you know, even when public policy or health policy decides what kind of death is relatively on that scale and everything is a spectrum, somewhat avoidable and what is absolutely to be prevented against, it's, it's very, very interesting. Mm. And, and and do you have a point of view, Satya, on mm. the localizability of death, which you spoke about a little bit? I mean, I, do you yes. feel comfortable with uh, someone being dead when the brain is dead or the heart is dead or cardiorespiratory yes. death or whatever. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I'll respond to you, you by, uh, th- through my response to Prabhat. Prabhat. Uh, there are two things. The, uh, first of all, uh, the death is uh, important uh, because precisely because it is not merely objective event, because it is existential, you see. Uh, when somebody, my father died, so it is, I was devastated. So it is... If it were a mere objective event, then it would not have been like this. So that is precisely an what event... What do you mean by that, Satya? Sorry? What do you mean by that? Uh, what do you mean by death being important? You mean it having significance for someone? Is yes, that what you yes, mean? Yes, mm-hmm. And significance for the other who is left behind, survivor, let's say. So it brings actually the question of the ethical in a far more pronounced way. Mm-hmm. Uh, since more or less now we agree that uh, that is inevitable, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the question is for me uh, how to die. It's not so much to uh, what is that to define what is that, but how to die. How, uh, in what ethically responsible way we can possibly die? How is one to die then? What well, I'll give say? you the example from uh, Socrates, the f- philosopher, uh, the paradigmatic philosopher, the first yeah. one of the first philosophers from Greece. Uh, the question was, um, as you know, that Socrates, Socrates was uh, put to death because yeah. because he his philosophy was proved to be dangerous for the Athenian community, for the government, Athenian government. Now uh, he was put to death, but however he was given the choice: uh, he can escape death, he can go away from the country, or he can uh, drink uh, poison. Socrates uh, selected the, the first choice, the, the second choice that I should drink poison and die rather. Now, what it, why, why he uh, chose that over uh, being exiled? Uh, at one moment, when um, the, just the day before the uh, before his uh, death, everybody was weeping, everybody is crying. His wife is crying, his friends are crying, uh, but he's not crying. So he is completely calm and he slept well and very happy and so and so forth. Mm-hmm. So one of his disciples asked him, uh, why you are, uh, you know, it's not affecting you or what? Then mm-hmm. Socrates said that uh, to be a philosopher is learning how to die. Right. So I have been a philosopher and I have been trained by myself mm-hmm. how to die. So all throughout anyway, I have been dying, you see. Uh, what does that mean? It means what that does one learn? I mean, I yes. think one understands yes. that it's about learning how to die, maybe. Yes. But what does one learn? Yes. Uh, Socrates goes on to say that uh, to die, if dying means the separation of soul and the body, uh, the philosoph- philosophizing is a training to separate soul and body in any case. Mm-hmm. So all throughout, Socrates has been preparing himself to die. So. The death is not an event of final importance, but uh, uh, what is important that how ethically 
we can die, how possibly we can have a beautiful death. That means death for the sake of truth, death for the sake of others, what you call Christ's death. The crisis that's a kind of that where he happily sacrifices his life for the sake of mankind and so on and so forth. So here, uh, Socrates also brings out the problem of immortality. Mm-hmm. Uh, the philosopher doesn't need to mourn his death because he can hope for immortality. And uh, that immortality is in the form of justice. Uh, in one of the uh, very uh, inter- interesting passages where uh, Glaucon, one of his interlocutors, uh, asked uh, Socrates, um, you talk about justice, 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 and where is das- justice in this world? Uh, there is no justice in this world. And Socrates replied that precisely therefore we need justice. You see, So the absence of justice precisely demands justice. And the justice is what immortal in respect to mortal life. You see. As mm-hmm. immortality is to mortal life, so justice in regard to law. Mm. So the hope for immortality is hope for justice, which is an excess, which is to outlive me, survive me, even after my death. That's an ethical problem, an existential problem. That's interesting. So, yeah, so I mean, I have a, I have a small uh, concern. I mean, as, as you know, I come from a background of a, a more sort of positivist look at the whole thing, but... So, you know, this whole issue of inevitability, um, Mm -hmm. and of course, death is complex, and Mm -hmm. of course, death lends itself to philosophy. But, you know, at at a certain level, it it can collide into fate, destiny, uh, the kind of discourse. And uh, on one hand, it allows people to accept death uh, gracefully. But on the other hand, it perhaps can create an atmosphere which is permissive to not question why people are dying. Uh, and that's from the public health perspective. So, you know... That's uh, very interesting. Yeah. Uh, in the sense I that mean, why, the why should we be dying becomes of uh, a shield. malaria and this, mm. or dengue, or, you know, mm. uh, or, or for that matter, why, why are we having so, so many deaths due to road traffic accidents? So, mm. th- those questions also need to be asked. I mean, mm. And I think yeah. culturally that's much more Asian, isn't it? Yes. That yeah. fatalism. So Yeah, so the, the fatalism destiny... Um, is, is is a little double-edged and because uh, as, a, as a society uh, whilst death is inevitable but we are all keen that the, the lives are led to the fullest whatever that means so you know we don't want premature deaths that's very interesting well, there's and, you that know, Woody Allen quote right which is I suppose the extreme but he's asked he said I don't want to achieve immortality through my work I want to achieve it by not dying <laughs> 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 that's not realistic but I I agree with you I think some sense of it, the gentle acceptance of death that you've outlined, paired with a sense that life is just so worth living and we should not easily surrender uh, to the, or do not go gentle into the good night before a we certain time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, you all touched upon a few points and uh, Satya, you were talking about suffering for a bit and... Uh, you know, kind of lends itself to a discussion on euthanasia, for example. And, you know, when you know that someone is potentially not brain dead, uh, so maybe one doesn't even get to the point legally, what is that as an ethical problem, Sanjay? What does one to do? How does one resolve that? It's obviously a very difficult question. Yeah, so, I mean, it's uh, it's something that's been debated uh, all over the world. So the first thing I... I would like to say is that uh, 
we, we first of all need some clarity on t- terminology when we talk of euthanasia in sure. a sense. Uh, um, so, uh, so, so th- there is this distinction between uh, an active act of euthanasia, so you kind of uh, physician-assisted suicide. Yeah, of so that's a, that's a very active act. Yeah. Or you have this withdrawal of care, which is a passive act. Now, of course, there is a there is a zone which goes into both. But so you know, uh, sensible medicine everywhere, uh, mm-hmm. I guess, is almost always uh, performing some form of passive euthanasia, uh, in, including in India. I think the the issue is uh, when we when you, we debate. You mean you mean in case of terminal ill patients, obviously. Yeah, in case of terminal ill patients, or or I would say, even in, in somebody who's got some very severe infections, who's lying in the ICU, who's, has got multi organ failure, and we know that the, uh, the the chance of survival are very low. Incidentally, the what troubles me in India is that the economic factors also way on people's decision making and that's very dangerous in the in the euthanasia you mean debate. the fact that the care itself is costly absolutely yeah. absolutely it's that, a real that thing plays a role, yeah so in, in the euthanasia yes. in the euthanasia debate so uh, so it it needs to be uh, it, it of course it needs to involve society we need to be serious about it we've often been very very knee jerk you know the aruna shanbak case so people talk about withdrawal of care and i personally think that um, uh, active euthanasia, which is what some of the countries have moved on to, largely Scandinavia. And, uh, I, I, I don't think uh, we are, as a society are, are ready for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly what we need to begin to debate in a very organized, structured manner, uh, understanding that it's complex, is that lots of individuals who have terminal diseases, who have untreatable diseases, who are being, uh, who is being just supported either in hospitals or uh, for that matter with a lot of effort at care who that who for whom uh, uh, the, the whole issue of a, a kind of passive withdrawal is relevant mm-hmm. the the problem becomes more complex in india because of the economic factor because of the cultural factors but certainly is uh, is up for debate and uh, but but a mature debate not not just alarmist and you have a case and then you know the media just starts talking about it. Well, I'll add to that that uh, one of the things that really could be done in India and worldwide, it's, it's actually a very simple one, is letting anyone who's in severe pain and terminal conditions have access to oral opioids. You know, we restrict these things thinking, oh, people will get addicted. If I'm 80 years old, have a terminal cancer, the last thing I want to do is be in pain. And there's easy ways to deal with that, just yeah. increase the access. You know, there's an interesting survey, Sanjay and I are both physicians, so uh, we, there was a survey done of U.S. oncologists, top of the heap in terms of income and access to care. And mm-hmm. they had, if they were asked, if you had a certain types of terminal cancer, what would you do? Mm-hmm. But 80% of the doctors said, I would not take any chemotherapy. I would make sure I've got huge amounts of pain control. I would enjoy the rest of my remaining life in peace. Now, here's the people who, this is not what they do. These are the people who administer. What they do is often do the the kind of heroic efforts, sometimes futile, and um, yet for themselves, they would take very much the route that Satya is suggesting. 
be at peace with where you're at. But now the caveat here is, the question is, you know, if you're 50, what would you do versus what do you do what if you're 80? 80? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's very complex in other parts of the world where it's all right to... I think it's universal. The universal aspiration to have a good, healthy life and have little suffering in older age and die in peace, I, I, I really do think it's universal. It does get make more complex by both the cultural factors, which is some resignation or fatalism, mm-hmm. um, undue, I believe, but also the in India, the medical care system, which sees this as a money-making opportunity. So it gets complex by that, but... Yeah, I think we've touched upon this notion of suffering a few times and in, in many ways it's dying which is more problematic than death itself, isn't it? And when you're going through the protracted process as Sanjay is pointing out. Mm-hmm. Satya, why don't we think about suicide, for example, yeah, yeah, for a bit? Yeah, yeah. And um, obviously it's a different kind of death. Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't go through dying and you just mm-hmm. achieve death or whatever you... Mm-hmm. How would you think of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is an uh, interesting uh, phenomenon that uh, only human beings commit suicide. You see? Uh, it is a... Lemmings? Lemmings, do they do it uh, consciously? I don't know. I was just I mean, interesting think, that yeah. you mentioned So uh, Suicide is like capital punishment in opposite ways. Uh, human phenomenon. It's a human society's phenomenon. Now, uh, the, uh, and you know that famous saying that a suicide kills at least two people? The whole presupposition of uh, suicide is that uh, there is an event of death which uh, which is generally not in my own control. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I have to die, but the presupposition behind behind the suicide act is that I can kill myself. I have the ability to kill myself, as if as it were. Now, uh, as if. It is I who can kill myself. That's the whole suicide note all about. It is I, there is an I who can commit suicide. So that is a possibility, that is a thought as a kind of capacity of a subject, an I, a self, or whatever maybe. Uh, on the other hand, if you see, is it uh, do, even for the com- in the com- uh, act of committing suicide itself, that is already no longer available to the self? In a sense that uh, even at the last moment, uh, or even when uh, uh, that begins, uh, the self can no longer uh, reach a point in which it knows that it is no longer. Yeah, of you course. See, that, that limit is all the time, uh, all the time, uh, how to say, uh, uh, eluding the grasp of the self. In that way, suicide is in a strict sense, is not possible. Yeah. Uh, that e- even if you are killing yourself, even if you are uh, hanging on the, on, the, on the ceiling fan, still that is already escaping your, your grasp. You have not been able to grasp that, you see? So uh, it appears that that is indeed impossible. In a sense that that is not a capacity of a human being. That is not a... Uh, possibility of human being. One of the, uh, uh, perhaps it is the, it is uh, it is the oldest phenomenon of a desire of human society, is uh, to bring that into capacity, into possible uh, possibility, into a kind of mastery over that. And uh, now uh, I was thinking about when Prabhat and Sanjay were talking about that in society, 
now despite that so many deaths and so many different ways people are dying in, in, in helplessly uh, uh, uncared and unloved uh, despite immense uh, uh, events of that taking place all the time and we read in newspapers useless that banal deaths that has become a kind of banality in today's world interestingly and paradoxically in today's society there is no debt on the other hand in human societies that is also a cultural phenomenon there is a phenomena there is a whole custom or culture of mourning for the other uh, i'll give you an example uh, in a uh, few days back i was um, uh, i was in jamia millia university with a friend of mine and we are crossing uh, a cemetery kabrasthan uh, uh, then i remarked to my friend that oh there is a kabrasthan here and uh, she said that, um, well, it is not a good idea to be in the middle of the university, there is a Kurdistan. You see? Uh, we are actually not welcoming that. So you think we're hiding it somehow, socially? Yeah, actually we are repressing, culturally and socially. Would, we you, are trying would you say to that, Sanjay? Is, is it taboo in, in, in a manner which is social and cultural in nature? And obviously no one likes to die and no one likes their loved ones dead. Uh, but can it be made more prominent culturally, psychologically, socially? Well, you know, it's... Is uh, there a need to begin with? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very, very difficult to be objective about uh, talking about death. And I guess that um, um, the rituals and customs over the years surrounding the act, act of death is, um, have, have changed and... Uh, I guess we just, in fact, I, I, I have often seen now that uh, it's, it's kind of all actually becoming matter of fact in, mm -hmm. in a way. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a reflection of maybe my environment. Uh, uh, and you see that across the social strata? Uh, I, I, I would say so. I mean, I, I encounter death, of course, besides, of course, death in friends, family, but on a in my work and on a professional basis yeah mm -hmm. and it's, it's becoming a little more uh, matter of fact i mean when i worked in the west i would be kind of surprised that in a way the acceptance of that uh, you know uh, but but we are beginning to at least to see that shift towards a uh, uh, matter of fact that you know anything that's healthy uh, well uh, there are ways of looking at it but uh, um, what so I, happens, let's change course a little bit. It's obviously a problematic situation. When you do a liver transplant, it's obviously a living liver that you transplant in there. What happens in there? Um, yeah, so it's, 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 it's usually a, a, a patient who's very sick who gets a new liver from, from a donation from a brain-dead individual, you know, a deceased donor, as we call it, and the liver works most of the time. Um, Why do you course, say most? It doesn't work. Yeah, it al doesn't always work. Uh, the, the mortality of many of these major procedures, transplantation procedures, so liver especially, still runs around uh, 15, 20 percent all over the world. Mortality is 20 percent. Yes. 20. So it's it's mm -hmm. not by no means a perfect operation. Mm -hmm. um, so we 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 see post-operative deaths, and um, uh, of course the responses are varied, but I'm just beginning to see a slight change that, uh, you know, people are beginning to kind of accept it, more matter of fact. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, the, the cultural background. Um, 
my my concern again with with uh, with with what satya was talking about is that uh, for me my concern is uh, how do we even reduce those 20% deaths i mean that's what is on my mind as a as a clinician and uh, uh, can we can we reduce those mortalities and uh, mm-hmm. if not then can we predict it better who's going to tolerate a procedure better who's going to tolerate a treatment better uh incidentally as as physicians for us uh, it's a strange phenomenon but uh, we don't like deaths uh, after procedures uh we respond much worse to it than deaths uh, of of then there's a disease somebody comes in with with a disease and dies right uh, affects at least affects me much less than if i have performed a procedure and and then there is death so right. there's, there's a sense of guilt in whilst you are uh, working in in the in that profession so so that's this, this is a myriad kind of responses one has interesting and overall do you think of death as a mechanical failure let's someone lives a full life and it's just a mechanical failure of some body part or something like that right it's as simple as that uh, uh yes i mean I, i've been trained and taught and uh, it's been reinforced that there is a there is a body is a group of cells which are performing and which at some stage are going to pack up but can uh, can a patient or a person will and live a little bit longer you know um, what i mean uh, how so, much of it is you know the sense of agency that in a way satya yeah. is alluding to so you're to. talking of the sort of power of let's say what's called positive thinking Whatever. the power of yeah. uh yeah so it's it seems to me that uh, it, it doesn't fit into my my understanding of the human body that mm-hmm. you know uh, that you can actually uh, given the natural course of a disease you can live better in the natural course uh, that's very different from saying that you can prolong or you can change the natural course of a particular disease by your mind i mean i know there's a lot of interest and work in that but of course what you can do is respond differently to a disease mm-hmm. that that we see all the time but the mind body interaction and uh, people saying that uh, okay you know the same disease i prolonged my life by positive thinking and you know, things like that that's that's it's difficult for somebody like me to correlate with my understanding of the human body sure that's cool <laughs> prabhat maybe we come to you um and you know you've done your million death study and million is a big number how certain is the cause of death so if i were to find out how i'm likely to die what do i need to tell you and how certain would that pronouncement be and obviously um ruling out me getting hit by a truck on the road but the there's always uncertainty the act of death of course as we've discussed is not yeah. certain or mm-hmm. not uncertain but the causes mm-hmm. uh can be uncertain but again actually it does also vary by uh, by age mm-hmm. the kind of instruments we use in the million death study you know where we've got working with the registrar general 900 government staff knocking on a door in all parts of india interviewing if death has occurred and then having two physicians look at those records yields broadly good categories of causes of death mm-hmm. but only before old age above age 70 you have a problem where people have multiple conditions but before that most of the common things you can diagnose reasonably well 
But that problem is not just unique to India. Right. Right around the world. Of course. In older ages, there's a problem. And the Queen Mother, when she died at 101, mm -hmm. her official death certificate says the cause of death died of extreme old age. <laughs> so you have this at older ages. But to come back, I think what I, the, the statistics and the discussion, the discourse on death, to me, really should be about what does it help us with life. Exactly as Satya said, death is actually uh, not quite the removable life, but it's not life. Yeah. And take come back to the example of suicide. Well, in India, what the Million Death Study showed was a startling statistic that there's almost twice as many suicides as there are AIDS deaths, that the age pattern is very much among younger women, particularly in South India. Oh. And that the number of farmer suicides, which get all the political attention, was a trivial proportion. Oh. What is happening is, particularly in South India, young women, 25-year-olds, for reasons we don't fully know, around the time they're either getting married or getting into society and work, large numbers of them are killing themselves. And that these statistics, which you know I, I've been talking about, are they point to that, and we need a discussion on what does that mean. There's that famous quote by Stalin, right, that the death of a million people is a it's mere statistic, statistic but yeah. the death of one person is a tragedy. Yeah. And we have, as Sanjay has said, too many premature tragedies in India. And female suicide is an enormous one. My, my good friend uh, P. Vasunath has disagreed with me publicly about farmer suicides. Mm -hmm. But the real issue here is young women and mm -hmm. men mm -hmm. killing themselves and, you know, we really don't know why and what we can do about it, but we should have a debate about it. Do you feel optimistic about it being a tractable problem, given enough data, given access to... Um... The suicide rates have gone up in young people. That's worrisome. Hmm. Overall, death rates are enormously progressive, but, you know, when you want to solve problems, you look at specific things. So huge progress in child deaths coming down, Almost everything is coming down. But when you see things like suicide death rates going up, you should say, what's going on? We have a, have a societal debate on what's going on. And how different is it in different parts of the world? And are we in, dying in, differently today from 200 yeah. years ago? Well, just take the, the suicide statistics in the mm -hmm. West. The mm -hmm. age pattern says that most suicides occur at the end of life. Right. Uh, and people who have chronically depressed, right. and they tend to uh, do themselves in. Mm -hmm. But in India, the pattern that's been, and in China, particularly in the southern so parts... So these are not necessarily psychiatric conditions? No. What If there's been some studies that find among suicide attempts that survived, the next day they were fine. They really were acting out in a social situation, mm. which uh, we don't understand. Mm -hmm. uh, it, we can guess it involves marriage or work. Yeah. And... Their rational way in, in their mind, and maybe Satya would disagree with my definition of rationality there, but their thought was the best thing out for me in this situation is to kill myself. Yeah. But if they didn't... Well, you're better off dead than alive. Yeah. And that's the next simplistic. day, however, there was no issues. There were. It's not like they needed chronic antidepressants or other things. Oh, they, that's they very fine. interesting. And in, in those same areas, do you see cases of stress-induced 
diseases or whatever. Well, stress higher. doesn't actually uh, cause a lot of diseases. There's That's a bit true. of a myth that Stressed mm. people get heart disease. No, actually, obese people who smoke and have diabetes get heart disease. <laughs> Stressed or not. So. Right, yeah. right. Interesting, interesting. Why don't we just zoom out maybe 500 years and visualize what that world is likely to be? Yeah. Are people going to be dying differently? Are the birth certificates going to be, death certificates going to be different in any yeah. manner? And in what way and manner are we going to be able to change this bathtub pattern, so to speak, and... Do you see, let's say, childbirth as, as one isolated case? Is this a tractable problem? Is it something that we're likely to be able to solve? Or The, the ambition um, that has been made worldwide is by 2030, the number of child deaths worldwide should go from about 6 million today down to 2 million or less. And as I said, Bill and Melinda Gates have dedicated the rest of their lives and all their fortune to trying to do so, and others are doing so. I think we might get there mm -hmm. because technology and public health are moving faster. Mm -hmm. the, what is the ultimate goal? I th if you think, well, what what is uh, um, the expectancy now on, among elites in higher income countries as an aspiration. They have everything that you could aspire to in a modern world. Sure. Most of them don't die early in life. They die in older age and they die quickly with short diseases. Mm -hmm. That may not be a unrealistic aspiration. So that's an ideal template in a way. Yeah, well, we, will that occur by 2030, by 2050? I don't know, but I think eventually it will occur that we get to that kind of... Uh, in between, there might be all sorts of disasters. We might get another worldwide pandemic, which kills in large numbers. But the human condition, uh, human uh, beings are very resilient. If that occurs, what happens? Worldwide death rates double for a year. Like India would have not 10 million deaths, but 20 million deaths. It occurs for one year, and next year it goes back it to normal. Back. Yeah. It's interesting. Sanjay, what's the future of dying? 500 years is a long time and I, if you if you you're inviting trouble by saying 500 years because you know that then it becomes we can be very uh, be speculative conspiratorial but 50 years 100 years is 500 years is where we want to be okay 500 years okay is it possible to achieve immortality for mm. the body the biological immortality we could keep having transplants and keep shifting body uh, parts no short answer no uh, and you're confident of that? Uh, as confident as my current uh, understanding of the human body is, uh, yes, we're going to, of course, have longevity. We're going to have uh, uh, life expectancy going up. We're going to keep people alive. Uh, but immortality, but, I mean, immortality is also, uh, I mean, there's a kind of bizarre forms of immortality, like people putting themselves in, Freezers and cryogenic, you know, uh, cryogenic, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but uh, life as we understand it, a reasonably good life. Well, life of course, life full. with a sense of autonomy, having fun, going yeah, around. Yeah. So no, I, I, I don't. Not think the future so. you wish would happen, but the future that you think will happen. You think it will not happen. I don't think it'll happen. I, I ask whether I hope it will happen. No, no it will be very so. boring to uh, be. Uh, alive for very long and, you know, go on and on. So. Certainly in a freezer, it'd be very dull. <laughs> It'd be cold, of course. Uh, um, no, I think there are, there are limits to uh, modern medical science. And although we have pushed it and we are pushing it. and What exactly are those limits? 
what exactly are those biological limits what why exactly can't the heart keep pumping for 200 years yeah so i think the a, a lot of the answers are at the um, are really at the uh, the cellular level mm-hmm. uh, the ability of the cell t- to go on mm-hmm. uh, with all the barrage of attacks that the human body faces mm-hmm. uh, from external the, from the external environment um so the, the 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 limits are really for the cell to go on and on functioning uh, in a effective manner which sustains life um on the other hand uh, it's it's also true that whilst we want we are trying to uh, push uh, life expectancy the external environment that we are living in is is not actually necessarily conducive always to allowing the cells to go on so the number of carcinogens for example i suspect uh, is is, is only going, going to go up, up. so um in fact the cell is wise almost in a philosophical sense that sydney brenner's nobel prize was on what's called program cell death mm-hmm. which basically means cells in their fundamental uh, rna dna structures no program to die well, they're programmed to die they Auto think poiesis. times up yeah. i'm no longer useful i yeah. should go and if you connect that at a but societal level but it's a self replenishing phenomenon isn't it i mean at least i mean keeps going on for 60 70 years the threshold yeah. that is yeah. spoken about there are, there are limits to and then it suddenly yeah. gives up so yeah. if it's wired into the way nature is sure why does a tortoise live for 200 years <laughs> i mean anyway it's interesting we're doing a centaur up to year, 200 years from now <laughs> yes if if you're immortal and we hang around sure you're all <laughs> welcome to join <laughs> how are we going to philosophize differently satya what about, about dying 500 years out i think uh, if uh, if i want to speculate if suppose uh, somehow we reach uh, immortality in terms of the endlessness of living mm-hmm. uh, i think that time we will not have a definition of life uh, because we know what is uh, what does it mean to be alive because we die if we don't die then we will not have life we will not understand what is life Uh, so the definition of what is life is derived from the possibility of dying in fact the life is a gift of death you can say the whole question that uh, that i am trying to invite you to think is that uh, that is not just a objective biological event but it is also an existential ethical and cultural event uh that is why uh, we want to stop death or we want to prolong life and uh, because it is existentially important it's uh, ethically important and uh, suicide we want to stop because it is a cultural phenomenon and then uh, it is a how to say a bad way of dying what we should have is not to prolong life but a good way of dying what are some good ways of dying we have to perhaps uh, uh, create a cultural social and existential situations in which uh, it is possible to die uh with a certain uh, uh certain uh, purpose you can say it's a very old question why wh- uh, what does it mean to live a life or what is the meaning of life um i think we and in a sense you're equating good life to good death absolutely absolutely that's, that's the point right. that i wanted to uh, say that is important because uh, we are alive if we we are not alive then that is not important 
So that is important because, uh, because um, as a living human being, uh, we are destined to die. The whole question is that how to die uh, beautifully or how to die uh, a death which is not useless, not uh, banal death, or there is a technology of death. Let, for example, uh, in Hitler's time, Nazi time, there's a technology which uh, produced uh, death. Some six million people were being killed. And that is a technologically sophisticated way of killing. It's a technology of that. I think that's a bad way of dying. That's what I mean to say, bad way of dying. So technology is not really neutral. Technology is, uh, is, is dangerous. Uh, I'm not an, against technology, but I think it's a good way to, uh, wise to think of uh, how to use technology in terms of its use for human beings' existence. Sanjay, how can we fulfill Satya's wish? How do we make death beautiful? So we, uh, we of course, uh, become a little more, uh, um, uh, develop our understanding of disease processes, uh, the natural history of uh, certain diseases. Uh, we are a little more mindful of how we approach treatment modalities, take the good, uh, know what is the bad. We don't allow the market to enter medicine. I think, I think it's very important. What market do you mean medicine, by that? Oh, what I mean by that is that if market uh, forces prolong life, absolutely, uh, mar market forces prolong life for their own sake. Uh, mm. So you know, uh, uh, all the evidence is that market forces will uh, will uh, do a lot of damage on one hand and will prolong unnecessarily prolong life. And so we don't allow to um, the market to take over uh, uh, as it has taken over life. Don't let the market uh, take over death. Uh, so that's very interesting. Yeah, <laughs> and and. Is so that practical? I, well, yeah, I think just I avoid think being the U.S. You know, there's that joke that in in uh, Canada, you death is inevitable, so you kind of wait for it. In the U.K., death is avoidable, so you're kind of prepared. In the U.S., death is optional. Just pay for it; you don't die. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think India wants to be where the U.S. Yeah, is. Certainly, I agree with that. Certainly not. Although. Uh, currently, of course, our, our focus is how to live better. I mean, I mean that's that's the big, big issue. But so when I say market, what, what I mean is that uh, if, you, if you're logical, rational about it, uh, we know that diseases, uh, certain stage, uh, we need to uh, withdraw. We need to just offer care, comfort. Uh, the word palliation, but care, comfort, and, right. and, uh, and accept it. Interesting. Prabhat, maybe we'll end with just this notion of the individual versus the state, because the moment you work in the area of policy, health policy, public policy, and so on, at some level it kind of presupposes the role and importance and need for a state to perform a certain function. Um, will the state continue to be relevant several years out, or is it possible to be in a world where at some level the existence is almost largely individuated and if one desires one can live a long life obviously one one lives off public goods like air and water which one cannot do with but how do you see that going seven you, years out? there are some choices that certainly you can make as individuals and families and mm -hmm. i certainly believe that what needs to be built is a a social entitlement mm -hmm. that indian expect uh, good health that's an entitlement. It's not something the government is giving to me, but we expect it as part of our rights and our opportunity to participate in a modern democracy. But there is also an aspect, as Sanjay has alluded, of just bad luck. If I get hit by a bus, 
just yeah. out of luck. I want someone to look after that properly. If I happen to get cancer through no fault of my own, I want someone to treat it probably. Or if I'm really sick, give me uh, pain pills so that I don't uh, I don't suffer. So we will have the role of a state, but I think we need to turn that around. People need to take responsibility for their own health, but also expect part of my entitlement is I want the services to be there. I'm paying for it. I want the doctor to be at the clinic. I want the services to be delivered. I don't want fake vaccines in my child. Um, I want proper vaccines. So we collectively should demand that from our state, is that you have to deliver this. It's an essential function, and it's part of our entitlement. Right, right, right. Terrific. No, I think that's a good note to end this on. Thank you so much for uh, making it, and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you. Take care. Thank you.